This is a recording of Chapter 3, The Visible and Invisible Worlds of Salem, from the book After the Fact, The Art of Historical Detection, 6th edition, by James West Matt Davidson and Mark Hamilton Lytle, all rights reserved. Full disclaimer, this podcast is strictly for educational purposes and not meant for public distribution. Part 2. The Invisible Salem Paradoxically, the most obvious facet of Salem life that the historian must recreate is also the most insubstantial. What ministers of the period would have called the invisible world. Demons, familiars, witchcraft, and magic all shaped 17th century New England. For most Salem villagers, Satan was a living, supernatural being who might appear to people, bargain with them, even enter into agreements. The men and women who submitted to such devilish compacts were said to exchange their souls in return for special powers or favors, money and good fortune, perhaps, or the ability to revenge themselves on others. Most often, ordinary folk viewed witchcraft as a simple matter of maleficium. Sarah Gadge, for example, believed that Sarah Good caused one of her cows to die after a hostile encounter. The process by which such suspicions grew was described well in 1587 by George Gifford, an English minister who was himself quite skeptical of witchcraft. Some woman doth fall out bitterly with her neighbor. There followeth some great hurt. There is a suspicion conceived. Within a few years after, the same woman is in some jar argument with another, he is also plagued. This is noted of all. Great fame is spread of the matter. Mother W is a witch. She had bewitched Goodman B. Two hogs die strangely, or else he is taken lame. Well, Mother W doth begin to be very odious and terrible unto many. Her neighbors dare say nothing, but yet in their hearts they wish she were hanged. Shortly after, another person falleth sick and doth pine. He can have no stomach unto his meat, nor he cannot sleep. The neighbors come to visit him. Well, neighbor, saith one, do ye not suspect some naughty dealing? Did ye never anger Mother W? Truly, neighbor, saith he, I have not liked the woman in a long time. Such suspicions of witchcraft were widespread in the early modern world. Indeed, the belief in Maleficium was only one part of a worldview filled with magic and wonders, magic that could be manipulated by someone with the proper knowledge. Fortune tellers provided a window into the future. Objects like horseshoes brought good luck. Earthquakes and comets warned of God's judgment. People who possessed more than the usual store of supernatural knowledge were known as cunning folk who might be called upon, in times of trouble, to heal the illness of a sick villager, cast horoscopes for a merchant worried about a ship's upcoming voyage, 
or discover what sort of children a woman might bear. The outlines of such beliefs are easily enough sketched, but it can be difficult to imagine how a Salem villager who believed in such wonders might have behaved. People who hold beliefs foreign to our own do not always act the way that we think they should. Over the years, historians of the witchcraft controversy have faced the challenge of recreating Salem's mental world. One of the first people to review Salem's troubles was Thomas Hutchinson, who in 1750 published a history of New England's early days. Hutchinson did not believe in witchcraft. Fewer and fewer educated people did as the 18th century progressed. Therefore, he faced an obvious question, which centered on the motivations of the accusers. If the devil never actually covenanted with anyone, how were the accusers' actions to be explained? Some of Hutchinson's contemporaries argue that the bewitched were suffering from bodily disorders which affected their imaginations. He disagreed. A little attention must force conviction that the whole was a scene of fraud and imposture begun by young girls, who at first perhaps thought of nothing more than being pitied and indulged, and continued by adult persons who were afraid of being accused themselves. Charles Upham, a minister who published a two-volume study of this episode in 1867, was equally hard on the young women. There has seldom been better acting in a theater than displayed in the presence of the astonished and horror-stricken rulers, he concluded tartly. Indeed, the historical record does supply some evidence that the possessed may have been shamming. When Elizabeth Proctor was accused of being a witch, a friend of hers testified that he had seen one of the afflicted women cry out, there's Goody Proctor. But when people in the room challenged the woman's claim as evidently false, she backed off, saying only that she did it for sport. They must have some sport. Another of the tormented young women, Mary Warren, stopped having fits and began to claim that the afflicted persons did but dissemble, that is, that they were only pretending. But then the other accusers began to declare that Mary Spectre was afflicting them. Placed on the witness stand, Mary again fell into a fit that she did neither see nor hear nor speak. The examination record continued. Afterwards, she started up and said, I will speak, and cried out, Oh, I am sorry for it, I am sorry for it, and wringed her hands, and fell a little while into a fit again, and then came to speak. But immediately her teeth were set, and then she fell into a violent fit and cried out, Oh, Lord, help me, oh, good Lord, save me, and then afterward cried again, I will tell, I will tell, and then fell into a dead fit again and afterwards cried, I will tell. They did, they did, they did, and then fell into a violent fit again. After a little recovery, she cried, I will tell. They brought me to it, and then fell into a fit again, which fits continuing she was ordered to be had out. The scene is tantalizing. 
it appears as if Mary Warren is about to confess when pressure from the other girls forces her back to her former role as one of the afflicted. In the following weeks, the magistrates questioned Mary repeatedly, with the result that her fits returned and she again joined in the accusations. Such evidence suggests that the girls may well have been acting. Yet such a theory leaves certain points unexplained. If the girls were only acting, what are we to make of the many other witnesses who testified to deviltry? One villager, Richard Commons, reported seeing Bridget Bishop's specter in his bedroom. Bishop lay upon his breast, he reported, and so oppressed him that he could not speak nor stir, no, not so much as to awake his wife sleeping next to him. Cummins and others who testified were not close friends of the girls. There appears no reason why they might be conspiring with each other. How does the historian explain their actions? Even some of the afflicted women's behavior is difficult to explain as conscious fraud. It is easy enough to imagine faking certain fits whirling through the room, crying wish-wish, being struck dumb. Yet other behavior was truly sobering, being pinched, pummeled, nearly choked to death, contortions so violent several grown men were required to restrain the victims. Even innocent victims of the accusations were astounded by such behavior. Rebecca Nurse on the witness stand could only look in astonishment at the lamentable fits she was accused of causing. Do you think these afflicted suffer voluntary or involuntary? Asked one examiner. I cannot tell what to think of it, replied Nurse, hesitantly. The prosecutor pressed others with similar results. What ails the girls, if not your torments? I do not know. Do you think they are bewitched? I cannot tell. What do you think does ail them? There is more than ordinary. More than ordinary, historians may accept that possibility without necessarily supposing the presence of the supernatural. Psychiatric research has long established what we now take almost for granted, that people may act for reasons they themselves do not fully understand. Even more, that emotional problems may be the unconscious cause of apparently physical disorders. The rationalistic psychologies of Thomas Hutchinson and Charles Upham led them to reject any middle ground. Either the Salem women had been tormented by witches, or they were faking their fits. But given a fervent belief in devils and witches, The Salem episode can be understood not as a game of fraud gone out of control, but as a study in abnormal psychology on a community-wide scale. Scholars of the 20th century have been more inclined to adopt this medical model. Indeed, one of the first to make the suggestion was a pediatrician, Ernest Caulfield. The accused were not imposters or pests or frauds, he wrote in 1943. They were not cold-blooded malignant brats. They were sick children in the worst sort of mental distress. 
living in fear for their very lives and the welfare of their immortal souls. Certainly the fear that gripped susceptible subjects must have been extraordinary. They imagined themselves pursued by agents of the devil, intent on torment or even murder, and locked doors provided no protection. Anthropologists who have examined witchcraft in other cultures note that bewitchment can be traumatic enough to lead to death. An Australian Aborigine who discovers himself bewitched will stand aghast, his cheeks blanch, and his eyes become glassy. He attempts to shriek, but usually the sound chokes in his throat, and all that one might see is froth at his mouth. His body begins to tremble and the muscles twitch involuntarily. He sways backwards and falls to the ground and after a short time appears to be in a swoon, but soon after he writhes as if in mortal agony. Afterward, such victims often refuse to eat, lose all interest in life and die. Although there is no record of bewitchment death in Salem, The anthropological studies indicate the remarkable depth of reaction possible in a community that believes in its own magic. Historian Chadwick Hansen compared the behavior of the bewitched with the neurotic syndrome that psychiatrists refer to as conversion hysteria, a neurosis A neurosis is a disorder of behavior that functions to avoid or deflect intolerable anxiety. Normally, an anxious person deals with an emotion through conscious action or thought. If the ordinary means of coping fail, however, the unconscious takes over. Hysterical patients convert their mental worries into physical symptoms such as blindness, paralysis of various parts of the body, choking, fainting, or attacks of pain. These symptoms, it should be stressed, cannot be traced to organic causes. There is nothing wrong with the nervous system during an attack of paralysis or with the optic nerve in a case of blindness. Physical disabilities are mentally induced. Such hysterical attacks often occur in patterns that bear striking resemblance to some of the Salem afflictions. Pierre Jeannette, the French physician who wrote the classic Major Symptoms of Hysteria, 1907, reported that a characteristic hysterical fit begins with a pain or strained sensation in some part of the body, often the lower abdomen. From there, it seems to ascend and to spread to other organs. For instance, it often spreads to epigastrium, the region lying over the stomach, to the breasts, then to the throat. There it assumes rather an interesting form, which was for a very long time considered as quite characteristic of hysteria. The patient has the sensation of too big an object, as it were, a ball rising in her throat and choking her. Most of us have probably experienced a mild form of the last symptom, the a proverbial lump in the throat that comes in times of stress. The hysterics lump, or globus hystericus, is more extreme, as are the accompanying convulsions. 
the head is agitated in one direction or another, the eyes closed or open with an expression of terror, the mouth distorted. Compare those symptoms with the fits of another tormented accuser, Elizabeth Brown. When the witch's specter did come, it was as birds pecking her legs or pricking her with the motion of their wings, and then it would rise up into her stomach with pricking pain as nails and pins of which she did bitterly complain and cry out like a woman in travail, and after that it would rise to her throat in a bunch like a pullet's egg, and then she would turn back her head and say, which you shan't choke me. The diagnosis of hysteria was gain, has gained ground af- over the past decades. Yet the issue of fraud cannot be put so easily to rest. Bernard Rosenthal, a scholar who has re-examined the Salem records, argues that fraud and hysteria were intermingled. What are we to make, for example, of testimony about the torments of one Susanna Sheldon? Susanna Sheldon, being at the house of William Shaw, she was tied her hands across in such a manner that we were forced to cut the string before we could get her hand loose. And when she was out of her fit, she told us it was Goody Dustin that did tie her hands after that manner. And four times she hath been tied in this manner in two weeks' time. The first two times she saith it was Goody Dustin, And the two last times, it was Sarah Good that did tie her. It is one matter to have fits through terror, but another to have wrists tied four times by a specter. Unless we believe in invisible spirits, the only reasonable explanation would seem to be that Susanna Sheldon had a confederate who tied her hands. Similarly, Diodat Lawson, a minister who devoutly believed in witchcraft, reported in March 1692 that some of the afflicted, as they were striving in their fits in open court, have, by invisible means, had their wrists bound fast together with a real cord, so as it could hardly be taken off without cutting. Some afflicted have been found with their arms tied and hanged upon a hook, from whence others have been forced to take them down, that they might not expire in that posture. The conclusion, argued Rosenthal, must be similar. Whether the afflicted worked these shows out amongst themselves or had help from others cannot be determined. But there is little doubt that such calculated action was deliberately conceived to perpetrate the fraud in which the afflicted were involved, and that theories of hysteria or hallucination cannot account for people being bound, whether on the courtroom floor or on hooks. Such evidence suggests a complex set of behaviors in which both hysteria and fraud played a part. As for those who were accused of witchcraft, they were put under severe pressure by the court's decision to view confession as worthy of pardon, while viewing denials of witchcraft as a sign of guilt. Indeed, the court magistrates appeared not to want to take no for an answer. 
John Proctor complained that when his son was examined, because he would not confess that he was guilty when he was innocent, they tied him neck and heels till the blood gushed out at his nose and would have kept him so 24 hours if one more merciful than the rest had not taken pity on him. Sarah Churchill, a young woman of about 17, experienced similar pressures. She apparently succumbed to her fears and testified that she was a witch. Soon, however, she had second thoughts, for she came crying and wringing her hands to an older friend, Sarah Ingersoll. I asked her what she ailed, reported Ingersoll. She answered she had undone herself. I asked her in what? She said in belying herself and others in saying she had set her hand to the devil's book, whereas she said she never did. I told her I believed she had set her hand to the book. She answered crying and said, no, 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 I never, I never did. I asked then what had made her say she did. She answered because they threatened her and told her they would put her into the dungeon and put her along with Mr. Burroughs. And thus several times she followed me on up and down telling me that she had undone herself in belying herself and others. I asked her why she didn't tell the truth now. She told me because she had stood out so long in it that now she dares not. She said also that if she told Mr. Noyes, an investigating minister, but once that she had set her hand to the book, he would believe her. But if she told the truth and said she had not set her hand to the book a hundred times, he would not believe her. Thus, psychological terrors sprang from more than one source. The frights of the invisible world, to be sure, led many villagers to fear for their lives and souls. But when the magistrates refused to accept the protests of innocence, they created an equally terrifying pressures to lie in order to escape execution. As the witchcraft episodes spread to include hundreds of people in the community, it is not surprising that different individuals behaved in a wide variety of ways. End of part two.